Let's pray and ask the Lord's help to understand his word and believe his word and apply it to our lives. Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning and giving us opportunity to fellowship with each other and to sing your praises together, Lord. We've heard your word read to us. We've sung about the truths that we find in your book, your word. And Lord, now we have time to um, just have an extended period where we are meditating on what your word has to say. May your Holy Spirit help us to believe what we read. May he help us to obey what we read as well. May he give us insight as to how this should change us, how we should apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me to Psalm 7. Last week we looked at the sixth Psalm and in between books. It's my hope to try to work through several psalms at a time, but we're up to Psalm 7 this morning. And I'm not going to read the entire thing, we're just going to work our way through it, but I did want to, by way of introduction, just hearken back to what our call to worship was in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. We saw there how Jesus listed the qualities that characterize those who are citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And he blessed those who were so characterized. And that's what the Lord does when we come to him for salvation. He begins to change us from the inside out. He begins to conform us to those qualities that he listed in Philippians 5. And the final quality that we found in that list was in verses 10 through 12. And I just want to read those again to us. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. According to Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, this persecution doesn't always manifest itself in physical violence. Sometimes it's merely verbal people saying false things about you. That's what Jesus said, falsely saying all kinds of evil against you because of me. It can take the form of slander. If you're a Christian, God's word assures you that as you follow Jesus faithfully, there will inevitably come about times when people persecute you. And that persecution may manifest itself in the form of slander. In Psalm 7, we see David facing this very thing. He is being slandered, and he is coming to the Lord with this issue. And it's very instructive for us as believers because this psalm teaches us how to respond when such treatment comes our way. If you have been slandered or if you are currently experiencing slander, this psalm should be one that you go to often to receive comfort and encouragement. If you have not yet been on the receiving end of such treatment, 
Scripture tells you that if you're following Christ, you can expect it in the future. You too need to hear this psalm because it will prepare you for that coming day. And for anyone who is participating in slander, someone who is actually being a slanderer, this psalm is actually a terrifying and timely warning that you should repent immediately. So let's hear what God's word has for us this morning in this psalm. In this psalm, we're going to learn about how it is that when you are slandered, you can still sing. That is what we're going to discover in this psalm, that when you are slandered, you can sing. And this psalm teaches you how that can be. The superscription of this psalm, which is a part of the inspired text, says this, a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. And it's literally concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Now, we don't know what the word Shigeon means. The only other place we see this word show up is in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 1. It's likely a musical notation on the type of song this was, or the way it was to be played, or the way it was to be sung. We also do not know who this Cush is, because we don't find reference to any such Israelite associated with David in the Bible. But we are given two details about him. First, it says here that this psalm was sung by David on account of Cush's words. Later on in this psalm, we will see that these words of Cush that David is referring to were words of slander. Cush was falsely accusing David. We're also told that this Cush was a Benjamite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, who is the most famous Benjamite you can think of in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Any ideas? Saul, King Saul. He was a Benjamite. And there were men within the tribe of Benjamin who were loyal to Saul and were not happy about David's ascent to the throne. One such individual was Shimei. Remember how David's son Absalom revolted? And as David was forced to flee the city because of the strength of Absalom's revolt, remember who it was that dogged David as he was fleeing, cursing him. It was Shimei. And in 2 Samuel chapter 19 and verse 16, we're told that Shimei was a Benjamite. And in 2 Samuel 16, verse 5, we're told that Shimei was a man of the family of the house of Saul. And not only that, but after David successfully put down his son's rebellion, right after that, another individual tried to stage a revolt as the kingdom of David was weakened. And that, that man was Sheba. And he also was a Benjamite. And you can read about him in 2 Samuel 20. I say all that because if this kind of opposition existed after Saul had died and after David was already made king, no doubt this kind of opposition also existed during the reign of Saul. It was widely known that God's plan was to put David on the throne and those loyal to Saul no doubt would seek to prevent that from happening. And I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 24, because this is an episode when Saul is still king, but David hints at the fact that there are those who 
want Saul to stay king and are against David. So turn to 1 Samuel 24. This is the episode where David is being chased by Saul. Saul's going on one side of the mountain. David's going around on the other, trying to avoid him. And at some point, Saul enters into a cave to relieve himself, not knowing that David and his men are in that very cave. And while Saul is there doing what he came to do, the, peop- the, the men of David encourage David to kill Saul. But David refuses. 1 Samuel 24, verse 6. This is after David cut off a piece of Saul's robe and felt guilty about it. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went on his way. So David actually saves Saul from his men there. Verse 8, Now afterward David arose, And went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men? You catch that? He he says to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So we see there that there were people in Saul's ear lying to Saul, telling him that David was out to get him, and it was not true. And we can't know for sure, but it may very well be that this Cush was one of those men fueling Saul's paranoia and rage as he sought to kill David. So with that background, let's get into the body of the psalm. In verses 1 through 2, remember, we're, we're trying to answer the question of how it is that a slandered saint can sing. And we're going to see five considerations in this psalm. And the first consideration, as we're trying to reason through how can I sing when someone's slandering me, is this. We need to consider the refuge for the slandered, the refuge for the slandered. As David faces slander and the frightening consequences that slander is having on his life, what is the first thing David does? He runs to God. Verse 1, O Lord, O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. David's pursuers are many. He says, save me from all who pursue me and deliver me. And again, we can't know for sure the circumstances he's describing, but when Saul was chasing him through the wilderness, that sure seems to fit the bill. As David desperately looked for places to hide and for ways to elude his pursuer's grasp, there was one sure refuge that David had found, and it was the Lord himself, Yahweh, his God. His enemy was like a lion ready to tear him apart, 
And David felt, in comparison with this enemy, he felt like a little lamb that could stand no chance against him. If God does not deliver David, no one will. And so David runs to God. When someone accuses you of doing something that you haven't done, it can feel overwhelming. You can start to wonder, boy, how many people are believing what is being said about me? The slander you may experience probably won't result in having a whole army try to hunt you down, but you can still feel pretty helpless. And who will it be that you run to when slander strikes your life? Will you put your trust in your own strength and try to out-slander your slanderer, fight fire with fire? Well, your strength and your scheming will fail you. Or will you put your hope in men and try to enlist people to rally behind you and stage some kind of political campaign to clear your name? Well, men will fail you. Run to the Lord. He will never fail you. Put all of your hope in him alone, because at the end of the day, he's the only one mighty enough to save you and deliver you from those who come against you. He alone is strong enough to deliver you from that chief slanderer who is who? The devil. And what does the devil do? He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If the Lord doesn't deliver you from him, you'll be torn to pieces. So run to the Lord. Lay your troubles before him and trust him with them. So that's the first thing to consider. Consider the refuge for the slandered. The second thing we should consider is the conscience of the slandered. In verses 3 through 5, David insists upon his innocence to the Lord. Verse 3, he says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. In verse 3, David says, If I have done this, what is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the false accusation of Cush that he has made about him. And then David goes on to fill us in on what this accusation was comprised of. We see in verse 3, if there is injustice in my hands. He was being accused of working injustice with his hands. In verse 4, he says, if I have rewarded evil to my friend. He's being accused with treating wrongly the one who's been a friend to him. And let me just get a little nerdy for a moment, talking about the second half of verse 4. Verse 4 goes on to describe this false accusation, at least as my Bible translates it, as him plundering his enemy wrongly. I actually prefer the King James translation here, where this part of the verse is rendered as more of a parenthesis, a parenthetical statement. The King James translates the second half of verse 4 like this, Yea, I have delivered him who without cause was mine enemy. That form of the verb in the second half of verse 4 that's 
translated as plundered in my Bible and as delivered in the King James, throughout the rest of the Psalms, it's always translated as rescued or delivered. And that translation would seem to fit here. If that's correct, David is saying, Lord, if I have done this, if I have committed injustice with my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, but actually I have delivered he who was wrongly my enemy. You see, he gives a series of hypotheticals. He says, if such and such, if I did such and such, but actually I delivered, I rescued him who was my enemy without cause. Is that not what David did with Saul in in that cave? David delivered the one who was his enemy, and David was wrong, or Saul was wrongly his enemy. Saul was chasing him unjustly, but when Saul went into that cave without knowing that David and his men were there, David's men wanted to kill Saul, but David rescued him from their hands. And this tells us that this accusation that Cush has leveled against him couldn't be farther from the truth. It's just not true, what he's being accused of. Verse 5, David says, If I have done this, verse 5, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. From this verse, we can tell that David is not asking for God's help simply to get out of trouble. David is not like Cain. Remember after Cain killed Abel, when God told Cain what was going to happen to him in consequences of murdering his brother, Cain complained. He said, this is too much for me. I can't handle this. That's not David here. David, according to verse 5, is willing to allow divine justice to fall upon him if he is indeed guilty of what he's being accused of. David is a man who is willing to suffer the consequences of his actions if he indeed has done wrong. But in this situation, David knows he has not done what he's being accused of. David's conscience in this matter is so clear His innocence is so certain that he can boldly pray this bold prayer, this potentially self-destructive prayer. Lord, if this is true, let me suffer for it. Now, I want you to consider the implications of this for our own lives. Are you living in such a way that when someone accuses you of wrongdoing, that you would be able to pray a prayer like this? Are you living above reproach? Or will there be truth to what your accuser says about you? We will all face accusations of wrongdoing. There's nothing we can do about that. We can't control that. But we can control whether or not the accusations are true. We'd rather they be false, right? If someone is going to say something bad about us, Would you rather it be true or false? False, right? You can control that. We would rather suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. To show you this, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Just to back up what I said. We can't control whether or not someone's going to slander us, 
but we can control whether or not what they say is going to be true or false. 1 Peter 3. Verse 13. Peter writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And here's the key verse, verse 16. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Then look over at chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Peter there says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure, catch this, this is another key, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. In other words, don't make sure if you're going to suffer that you're not suffering for your own wrongdoing, but that you suffer for doing what's right. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. David had kept a good conscience in how he behaved toward King Saul. Therefore, when accusation came, it was false. It wasn't true. Because David was living uprightly, accusation that came against him was unjust accusation. And it was because he was striving to live his life for God. And that's what you and I must do. We must strive to keep a good conscience in our lives so that when accusation does come, we are being accused not for evil that we have done, but we're suffering for good things that we have done. We should strive not to give the devil an opportunity to use us to drag the name of Christ through the mud or to use us to slander the name of the church. So that's the, the conscience of the slandered. We need to have a clear conscience. The third thing that we are to consider is the vindication of the slandered. We see that in verses 6 through 11. The vindication of the slandered. And this portion of the psalm, David calls on the Lord to judge the wicked. Verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. 
David implores God to act in judgment by saying the same thing three different ways. He says, arise, lift up yourself, arouse yourself. And he asks God to do this in your anger against the rage of my adversaries and for me. Apparently at the time of David's prayer, God had not yet visibly acted on David's behalf. And when we read verse 6, it can seem like David is trying to twist God's arm or to pull him up out of his heavenly lazy boy chair that he's fallen asleep in. But that's not what David is doing. Because look at the last phrase of verse 6. He says, you have appointed judgment. David is not trying to get God to do what God is hesitant or unwilling to do. No, he's simply imploring God to do what God has already planned to do. He's saying, you have appointed judgment. Rise up and do what you have appointed. We saw this last week, how David is careful to always pray in a way that is in keeping with who God is and what God does. It's why he prays as boldly as he does, because he knows that he's not asking God to do something contrary to who God is. And there's a lesson there for us. Bold praying without regard for who God is is vain, presumptuous praying. But bold praying with regard to who God is, that is faith-filled praying. And as we continue to go through verses 6 through 11, I want us to ask ourselves, do we know God well enough to pray like David is praying? Only if you know God as he is can you pray the way that David prays here. Verse 7, David goes on, he says, Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you or surround you, and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. In verse 7 there, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what David is asking, but seeing its place in this passage, where it is situated between verse 6, where David is asking God to rise up in judgment, and coming before verse 8, where God is, or David is saying that God judges people, and he's asking God to render judgment in this case, it seems like verse 7, when he says, let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high, it seems like David is asking God to, to come and take his seat on the judge's bench, as it were, surrounded by the people as they wait on him to stand up and deliver the verdict. That's what David is wanting. He's wanting his name to be cleared from these false accusations. And he's saying, God, Take your seat on the judge's bench, stand up, and deliver the verdict. And again, this is something that he knows God will do. Verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. And then he goes on, he says, vindicate me, O Lord. Judge me, give me justice. In this context, the translation, vindicate me, is a good translation. He wants God to declare him innocent of the false charge that has been laid against him. Now, this can seem contradictory to what we looked at last week in Psalm 6. In Psalm 6, 
we saw that God or David was not asking for justice. What was he asking God in Psalm 6? Anybody remember? He didn't say, give me justice. What did he say instead? Be, what's that? Yeah, merciful. Give me mercy. Give me grace. That's what he asked there. Now, why would it have been wrong for David to ask for justice in Psalm 6, but not wrong for him to ask for justice in Psalm 7? Well, we need to take into account that there are two different perspectives at play in these two different psalms. In Psalm 6, right off the bat, verses 1 to 2, we see that David is talking with God about his conflict with God. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. But in Psalm 7, David is talking with God about his conflict with man. In Psalm 6, David is praying to God about the treatment he's receiving from God. In Psalm 7, David is praying to God about the treatment he is receiving from man. In Psalm 6, it would have been wrong for David to implore God to deal justly with him because that would imply that God is dealing what with him? Injustly or unjustly, which we know is impossible. God cannot act unjustly. And in fact, if David were to ask for justice, as he relates to God, that's not going to turn out too good for him, is it? God never wrongly brings suffering into my life. And so my cry to God when I'm suffering at his sovereign hands can never be, God, give me justice. Instead, as I'm just thinking about how God is sovereign and the suffering that is in my life has passed through his hands first, I can't say, God, I don't deserve this because God has ordained it to come into my life and God is never unjust. So I can't say, give me justice. I can only say, give me grace. You and I can never justify ourselves before God in that sense because God is never unjust. Turn back one book before Psalms to Job, Job chapter 4. This was something that Job understood. He began to lose his handle on it as he went through his suffering. But there are clear statements from Job that he understands this. Job chapter 4 Verse 17, he says, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He, God, puts no trust even in his servants. And against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. Then turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1, Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? God's never wrong. And where Job kind of goes off track a little bit as he continues to go through horrific suffering is when he begins to imply that maybe God wasn't quite so just in bringing this upon my life. 
He was wrong on that, and God corrected him in a mighty way toward the end of that book. We can never accuse God of injustice in how he treats us. So that's Psalm 6. David is meditating on how God is dealing with him. But in Psalm 7, it is right for, God, or for David to ask God for justice because by doing so, he's not accusing God of injustice for bringing this suffering into his life. He's not, he's, just, he's not saying that God's not sovereign over it. That's just not what he's praying about at the moment. In Psalm 7, he's accusing who of injustice? Cush. And whoever it is that Cush has unleashed upon him. Now, I know this is hard to wrap our minds around, but there will be times when you are suffering at the hands of a slanderer and you will find yourself praying, God give me grace and God give me justice at the same time. How does that work? Well, on the one hand, you may pray this when you've been slandered. You may say, God, give me grace because I know you are sovereign and that therefore you have ordained for this slanderer to come into my life. You are just and you are good and you are wise for bringing this suffering into my life because you are either disciplining me for sin that the slanderer doesn't know anything about or you're training me. Either way, you're growing me in Christ-likeness. But on the other hand, regarding the exact same situation, you may also pray this, God give me justice because the things this person is saying about me just aren't true. Vindicate me, O God. Prove me innocent of this particular false charge. Do you see how that works? God is always just in the suffering he brings into my life. But man is not always just in doing so. God is sovereign over all. Sometimes God uses wicked men to discipline his children. As we relate to God, we know he's just in doing so. But the reasons that the man, the wicked man has in coming against me may not be unjust. So I can say, God, you're right in bringing this into my life, while at the same time saying, the reasons this man is coming against me are not right. So with respect to God, I can only pray, God, give me grace. But with respect to man, if the accusation is truly false, I can pray, God, vindicate me. And I think we see this in Psalm 26. Turn to Psalm 26. We see God or David praying the same sort of thing. Psalm 26, verse 1. What does he ask from the Lord there? Vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate me, implying that someone has come against him wrongly, slandering him. For I have vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. But then go down to verse 9, where David says, Do not take my soul away along with sinners nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity, redeem me, and be gracious to me. 
So David is praying both of those things regarding the same circumstance. Vindicate me from those who are wrongly slandering me. That's his prayer as he relates to the man in the situation coming against him. But as he relates to God, he says, redeem me, be gracious to me. He's praying both things at the same time. Back to Psalm 7, verse 9, verses 9 through 11, David continues. He says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. We see here that David continues to pray in strict accordance with who God is. He calls on God to do away with the evil of evildoers and to establish the righteous. Now, the righteous here means those who are trusting in God and are striving to live for God. And this is something that David knows God is able to do infallibly. Because what does the end of verse 9 say? The righteous God tries the hearts and minds. God is a God who makes no errors in his judgments. Therefore, David can trust that God is not going to be fooled by Cush. He's not going to be fooled by the slanders coming against him. Because God knows the heart and mind of the slanderer, and God knows the heart and mind of David. And he will render his judgment accordingly. Because of that, verse 10, David confesses, My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. You know how when you're traveling in a car and you have a near accident, it's always a little bit scarier for the passenger than it is for the driver? At least that's how it is with me. Because if you're the driver, you've got what in your hands? The steering wheel. So you feel, you may, this may be a deluded thought, but you feel like you have a little bit of control over the situation. But the passenger does not have the wheel in their hands, and they're just in that, that firework prayer in the moment, Lord, help him, help him to move the steering wheel in the right way. They're totally dependent on you who has the steering wheel in, their hand, in your hands. And so it's a little scarier for that passenger. David says, my shield is with God. David was a mighty warrior. So on the battlefield, you can bet that David was not about to let the shield that was supposed to protect him be on anyone else's arm except his own arm. But that's not the case in this situation. The shield is on whose arm? The Lord's arm. My shield is with God. David trusts God to bear the full responsibility for shielding him. When you get slandered, the temptation will be to take matters into your own hands. Don't. Don't do that. Trust God to shield you in his perfect way. God will vindicate you in his perfect timing. And again, how does David know this? Because David knows God, verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God is not asleep at the wheel 
when slanderers come into our lives. No, he's wide awake and he's filled with anger every moment of every day at the one who slanders you. God is more invested in dealing out justice than you are. So leave it in his hands. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 19? He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That brings us to our fourth consideration. We should consider the enemies of the slandered. Namely, we should consider what it is God will do to the enemies of the slandered. In verses 12 through 16, David expresses his certainty about what God is going to do. Verse 12, he says, If a man does not repent, he, God, will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His own mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate, that is, the crown of the head. David here stops praying, and he starts proclaiming what is going to happen. And the reason that he can do this is because he knows exactly who God is and what God does. This is him knowing what God will do to those who refuse to repent of their wickedness. And verses 12 and 13 is something that those who have not yet repented, who have not yet surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ in faith, need to pay very close attention to. According to verses 12 and 13, if a man does not repent, God is sharpening his sword to do battle with you. He has strung his bow, and he is preparing to shoot you, and God never misses. You don't know when God will let that arrow fly. So implied here is repent now. Repent now. Turn from your sins today and beg God for mercy, for grace. Run to Jesus Christ who alone took the arrow of divine wrath upon himself so that sinners could be saved and forgiven and welcomed into the loving embrace of this righteous God who created them. This God desires life for the wicked. Remember what he says in Ezekiel to the wicked? Why will you die? Repent. Find life in me. The only reason that God has not let that arrow fly already is because of his gracious patience towards you. And the only hope that you have to escape him is on account of what he himself has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. For the one who does not repent, who even can hear a warning like this and still continue on in his sinful way, verse 14 describes this person. This one who does not repent is like a woman in labor. Only the child he carries is wickedness. He travails or he's in labor with wickedness. Mischief has been conceived within him 
and falsehood will come forth from him. And that was certainly the case with Cush. Slander was just spewing out of his mouth toward David. But what the wicked does not know is what verses 15 and 16 tell us. Those verses tell us that the destruction that the unrepentant plans for others will only fall on his own head. He digs a pit to trap the righteous without realizing that he himself is going to fall into that pit and that that pit will serve as his own grave. And we see this dynamic play out repeatedly in the scriptures. In the book of Esther, wicked Haman builds a gallows for Mordecai. But who ends up getting hung on that gallows? It's Haman. Or the book of Daniel, chapter 6, where the officials of Darius were jealous about the status that Daniel was enjoying, and so they came up with this scheme to do away with Daniel, that if he would refuse to pray to anyone other than Darius, he would get thrown into the lion's den. And David would get thrown into the lion's den because he wouldn't compromise, but God kept him safe for an entire night in that lion's den. And then he got pulled out, and who got thrown in? Those officials and their families who had conspired against David. They had laid a trap for Daniel, but they sprung their own trap upon themselves. That's just how God's justice works. And then lastly, we come to the, slaw, the song of the slandered in verse 17. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. David has been slandered and his life has been placed in mortal danger as a result. And yet his prayer to God ends in praise. How did he end up here? How could anyone who has been slandered the way that David has been slandered end up here giving thanks to God and singing his praises? Well, this psalm gives us the roadmap to how to get there. First, David ran to God for refuge. We saw that in verses 1 to 2. Second, in verses 3 to 5, David brought his conscience before the probing light of a just God and he pleaded his case. He confessed his willingness to suffer for wrongdoing, but he protested his innocence. Third, in verses 6 to 11, David implored God to give him justice in this matter, and he tied his request to the very character of God, who is the righteous judge of all peoples. And then fourth, in verses 12 to 16, David declared what he knew to be true about God's dealings with the wicked. And all of that led to praise in verse 17. David had been greatly encouraged by reminding himself in prayer that this ultimate judge is a righteous judge who will not fail to clear David's name in due time. Therefore he says, I will give thanks to the name or I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. David says he will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. The name of God includes all that God is, all of his attributes, his faithfulness, his grace, his love, but also his justice. That is why David can praise God. And he says that he's singing this to the Lord Most High. 
There's no higher court that David's slanderer can appeal to, can accuse him before, than God, the one who has declared him innocent. That's how David has gone from panic to praise, from consternation to celebration. And that is how you and I can traverse our way through the trial of slander if the Lord ever allows that to come upon us. First, we make the Lord God our refuge, as David did. Second, through Christ, we enter into God's courtroom and we lay the case before him. We need to be willing to answer for any wrong that we may have done, but we also need to be honest with God about our feelings concerning the matter. He is just, and we can trust him with the details of the case. Third, we need to cry out to God for vindication if you know you are innocent of what someone's accusing you of. Let God carry your shield. Let him carry out justice on your behalf. He is more zealous for a just outcome than you are. And fourth, remind yourself of what God does to the wicked. That is also a part of the name of God. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will act on your behalf. And that truth should comfort your soul, but it should also humble you. Because if not for Jesus Christ, you yourself would be on the receiving end of that justice. And let that truth of the dire position of your slanderer, let that provoke in you a loving concern for him. Pray for his repentance that he may escape the wrath that is coming. And then, after you have prayed through all of that, praise God for who he is and what he will do for you, his child. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the book of Psalms and just the, the treasury that it is of all the situations that other believers have gone through before us and how they have wrestled with you and, and working through those situations. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to start from scratch when we encounter difficulty. And in this particular case, when we're slandered, Lord, we thank you that we don't have to be left flailing, wondering how we should pray, how we should respond to this. We have a roadmap given to us in Psalm 7. Lord, bring that passage to our minds quickly when we are slandered so that we may respond in a way that brings you glory, that we may respond in a way that shows that we're trusting in you and not in our own strength to deal with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.